that's one of the, uh, I always talk about facts versus myths. That's actually one of the myths is that just because you do a captive, you're going to get audited. And that's completely incorrect. There's in the United States alone, there's got to be five or 6,000 captives. And the majority of them are not under audit or have any stigma whatsoever. Shut up and sit down. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Wall Street Meet. Today we're talking about captives and the tax advantages and risk reduction that comes with them. I'm Andrew Shacker. And I'm Patrick Morad. And today we're uh, talking with Jeremy Kalambek with MSI Insurance. And we're going to be talking about closely held insurance companies or captives. Welcome, Jeremy. But yeah, I wanted John because I wanted to... Uh, obviously hit all the high points of captives and kind of before we get into the nuts and bolts, I want to talk about the stigma that's associated with captives and, and why, when the first thing out of your mouth, people think that they're going to get audited or, you know, their CPA tells them that they shouldn't be doing captives. So if we can maybe start with that. And then after that kind of get into the nuts and bolts, because I know we lose people after the first 10 seconds. So I want to get that out of the way to try and hook people. Sure. Yeah. Not a problem. Yeah, that's one of the, uh, I always talk about facts versus myths. That's actually one of the myths is that just because you do a captive, you're going to get audited. And that's completely incorrect. There's, in the United States alone, there's got to be five or 6,000 captives. And the majority of them are not under audit or have any stigma whatsoever. You have like a small minority of them that unfortunately just were not following the rules. And the IRS has issued... Uh, I call them scare tactics. And what I mean by that is the issue of the notice of the 2016-66, which by the way, is getting heard by the Supreme Court in December of this year. And that may get overturned by the way. Um, but at the same time, there's qualifications that need to be met in order to fill out the form. It's called 8886, which applies with the notice 2016-66. It's just called the transaction of interest. And just because you fill out the form doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just that unfortunately over the last few years, there's been a couple of court cases that the IRS has won and they've been using these to basically scare people into doing captives. And the court cases that they've won, really nobody in the industry really thought that these people should have been in the captive. You could have called it a captive, you could have called it a charity, you can call it anything you want. They were setting up basically a tax shelter and that's not what an insurance company is so unfortunately it's it's my job and the job of the industry to really educate people on it saying you know what you're talking about a very small percentage of captives that are being audited and just because you are audited doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong and unfortunately what the irs likes to do is use scare tactics in order to collect money so it doesn't have to allocate those additional resources in order to do so well, and, and back in the day, a lot of captives, they were misusing how they allocated the funds into the captive. They were doing more money than what they should have in order to reduce their tax, tax bill greater too, correct? Absolutely. And that's been proven in a couple of court cases I was talking about. You have the Avarami court case, which I believe is in 2017. And you also had the Syzygy case, which was in 2019. And both those cases it was complete abuse of what their assets were. They had over like 50% of their assets that in Syzygy, they couldn't use them to pay claims, which makes no sense why you have an insurance company that can't use the majority of its assets 
uh, to pay claims. And on the Avarami case, they had more than 50% of their assets in long-term illiquid loans. And these weren't originally approved by the regulator, which is extremely important because the regulators are the ones that hold the license. So they're the boss. So you have to get approval by, for all of your investments or any changes in your investment policies with the appropriate insurance regulator of the state that's in the United States or if they're offshore, you still have to have the insurance regulator of that jurisdiction. Okay. And what do you say to people who say, well, refer you to your CPA or they say that their CPA, you know, thinks that this isn't a good idea or this is, you know, a way that you're going to get audited and stuff like that? Well, what I would do is whenever I talk with CPAs, I always ask them, well, why do you believe that? And I'll say, well, if you have to fill out this form, this 8086 form, my clients can get audited. I said, not necessarily. Yes, will it have a higher chance because you have to staple it to the tax return and notify them? Potentially, but not <laughs> all small captives because that's what this really this 8886 form goes after. Not all 831B captives are applicable to this form. A lot of them are. But as I said before, not all of them are applicable to this. And if you're not applicable to this, you don't have to put this on the form. Second, if you're following all the rules and you're doing everything that you're supposed to do, it's more of a, a, a I would say, cost-benefit analysis saying, you know what, I followed all the rules. And if I do get audited, I'm very confident that once they do audit me, that I'll be fine with this. And some people who are not comfortable with this then maybe should not think about doing a captive at this time because it's not for everybody. Okay. Well, and let's talk about that too, of who it might be for and how they could use it. Sure. I would say that uh, another, I would always say this fact versus myth is that a company in order for the benefits to exceed the cost that a company has to gross at least $10 million or more per year to qualify for a captive. It's completely false. There's so many different, benefits and structures and even offer structures. People make hybrids of structures. And I would tell you that a business owner that's profitable, that grosses 1 million or more per year gross revenues, uh, potentially can qualify for a captive where the benefits exceed the cost. Because captives offer, I always talk about five main benefits. So you have the profit center, which are just the underwriting profits, okay? So no longer when people and businesses are paying premiums to commercial carriers, those commercial carriers keep the underwriting profits. Well, imagine being on both sides now of the equation, right? Now you get a insurance expense because you're buying property and casualty insurance policies, but now you're buying it through an insurance company that you own. So now that you get to keep this underwriting profits, unlike a third-party commercial carrier. Also, which is very important right now, is that the PNC market on the commercial side is hardening across the board. It started to last year, it's been increasing. You pretty much have been seeing rates across the board, doesn't matter what coverage you have, are going up anywhere from 10 to 100%, which is crazy. So you have a hardening of the commercial market. So people now are turning to captive solutions because they're like, well, wait a minute, why should I pay the third party commercial carrier when I can just open up my own insurance company have an actuarial done because that's very important is you have to have an actuary assess what the cost of the coverage is. It goes back to Patrick, what you're saying before about the dartboard method, where some of these ones with the Avaram, the Syzygies ones, where they didn't really have a pricing strategy. They, just, they basically just asked their clients, how much do you want to save in taxes? Great, we're going to issue you a policy. 
So you obviously don't want to do that. The next thing I always talk about is better management of risk, which is just plugging exclusions or gaps in commercial insurance policies, which again is very relevant right now. And one of the biggest exclusions that we're seeing across the board is the pandemic exclusions. We've had a lot of our clients, potential clients come to us saying, you know what? We thought we we're covered with these business interruption policies. And then we got a notice from our commercial carrier in the mail that says, don't even submit a claim in because you're declined because we have pandemic exclusions, which most of the uh, commercial carriers have pandemic exclusion policies. They did not price those into their policies. So you have a lot of business owners that did not have a captive solution going out of business where we have clients come to us asking to buy a pandemic exclusion, which we're happy to oblige to. And that's been very popular this year. I have also, a client, I have a yes, client actually that uh, he, has, he has a captive, but then he also still had the business insurance and he didn't apply or didn't activate that feature in the captive because he thought he had the coverage on his business insurance. Well, he tried to file a claim and come to find out his business insurance didn't cover it. So he switched over his captive policy so that next year it has that feature on it. And that's a great, and we've heard that story a number of times is think about it. How many people really read their insurance policies? It's not the most exciting stuff to look at. You might have 60 <laughs> pages and it's really boring stuff. So now people are looking into it. And also a lot of times people's agents might not even always know all these different exclusions. They might have a general idea, but a lot of agents might not read through all the exclusions on them. So you're obviously, that comes to my next one, which is just the increased risk awareness, which is just the education factor, which is educating our clients, potential clients on risk they were or were not aware of. And even if they were aware of the risk, they might not have been aware of the severity. And then the final one obviously is tax benefits. Yes, there are tax benefits, but I mentioned it the last, they're amongst many other benefits of a captive. And as long as a client is buying a captive for risk purposes, that also, yes, can have a tax benefit and they're doing it the right way with actuarials and underwriting and everything else, they should be fine. So when the client goes about setting up a captive, obviously your, your company does most of the, the legwork on the back end, but it's pretty much just like setting up any other corporate insurance policy, correct? Well, it's, it's a lot similar. And then there's obviously you have to form the own insurance company. You know, our office has enough people on staff where we can form them with you know, our lawyers and our insurance lawyers and everybody else in house. But a lot of firms will do that and they'll hire outside counsels to do that. But you really do want to have, in my uh, opinion, an outside, obviously, actuarial firm. You could have somebody in house to kind of look it over. But you do want an outside actuarial firm to do feasibility studies, which is whenever you're forming an insurance company, you have to know what an adverse and expected scenario is for claims ratios and expected risk, just like any insurance company. Hey, I want to form this insurance company. I'm going to take an X amount of premiums. Here are my expenses. Am I profitable enough? Which means is there enough capital and potential surplus to cover you know, max claims that occur? And that will probably potentially occur because you're a licensed insurance company. But I'd say once you form it, I would say the process of getting the coverage is very similar to commercial carrier, right? You have to fill out, we call them risk assessment forms and think out those great, lovely risk questionnaires that are extremely boring to people where, hey, I want to choose these certain coverages and you have to fill out the information. You obviously will get that information along with if you have any other commercial insurance policies 
or if you want any type of policy tailored, you get that information obviously into the manager who will review it, will then send this information on to their actuary as well as the underwriter. And then on that form, you'll usually have a budget premium the person wants to spend. So what happens is after that number's commuted based off of all these different policies, then it's sent back obviously the client says, you know what, um, your policies are gonna cost X amount of dollars. And here's what they're gonna cost based off of limits you want based off of your industry. And let's say it's above what their budget premium is. And the client has a decision. They can say, you know what, I wanna pay the extra premium. Or, hey, you know what? I still want to stick with that budget. What if I cut down some of my limits or I cut down some of my coverages? And once that's agreed to, then the client can then buy in the policies with the premium and then the policies then would be issued. Okay. And what happens at the end of five years? Because that seems to be the, the magical time frame of these things. Well, you know, it's interesting. I would always tell people, that it's at least a minimum run three years. A lot of people do five or six or seven years. Uh, a lot of times it's just depending on where the client's business are, you know, or is at the, t at the given point of time. You know, some clients, they're retiring, still don't need anymore. What happens in Fortune right now where businesses go out of business, you really don't need a captive anymore. So what they'll do is they shut down the captive. I personally think a lot of times too, people are like, well, this is working really good. What if I get out of the captive and I get the money, what, is that really mine? And it's like, yes, you're just shutting down the insurance company. You own the insurance company. These are your underwriting profits. You can do whatever you want with them. So a lot of people shut down the captives, maybe because they need the extra money. Um, but at the same time, um, if the captive has sufficient surplus over the years, the regulators, you know, which basically means the Department of Insurance, they've been pretty good about uh, allocating some, you know, 10 or 15 or 20% of an assets to maybe more aggressive types of investments versus the normal stocks, bonds, and maybe potential real estate. Okay. Guys, can we back it up a little bit for the more novice uh, folks like myself? Captives in this example, can it, when is it best to utilize and incorporate, if that's the right word, incorporate? to start a captive? Is it, is it when I have a business and I run in parallel to those go to parallel together? Or is it I have my personal wealth and then I have a captive? When is it? When, yeah. What's the use case here? Well, I think there's a couple of uses. So, you know, you might have somebody that says, you know what, it's a hardening commercial market right now. I need the coverage. I'm getting my rates about to go up 100 percent. What are my alternatives? So then you have the property and casualty broker said, you know what, let's look at a captive alternative for you. Okay, so that's one big alternative. Some business owners said, you know what, I have, I'm doing very well in the market uh, and I need, some, I need something else. I'm looking for a benefit. You know, yeah, I got some risk association. I like to have some type of benefit that helps with my risk. Maybe I have some type of tax benefit or something of that nature. So you get those conversations with people. And I always like to step back with people saying, you know what, before we even get started, because a lot of times it has to do with terminology. You know, captive, people get confused about what even a captive is. So I always start off people saying, look, a captive is just an insurance company for this. You know, you have to get over that. And unfortunately, with this industry, you have acronyms that confuse the hell out of a lot of people. So I say, look, we're talking about an insurance company. And whether you buy insurance or not, the risk is still there. 
So I'll talk to a business owner and I'll say, look, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Business Owner, you have certain risks that you're self-insuring now. It might be a business interruption. It might be a cyber policy. It might be something else. And even if you don't buy those risks, you are still taking on that risk. And a lot of people say, well, what do you mean I'm taking that on? You're self-insuring it. Because self-insuring it, all that means is that you're not buying a policy through a captive or the commercial market. And you can do two different types of self-insuring. You can put money aside, or you could just pay your taxes and your profits, take the money. And a lot of people, business owners, are greedy like that, right? Because they want those profits. And insurance isn't real sexy, so to speak, buying insurance. A lot of people are like, you know what? Why do I want to buy insurance? Yeah, that's great. I get an expense for it, but I don't think I'm getting everything, anything more about it. When I show people's comparison saying, you know what? If you end up buying the captive, okay, let's go over the benefits and compare a side-by-side scenario. And a lot of the times when people see the side-by-side scenario, I always call it a pre-captive versus a post-captive solutions. What they're going to see is they're going to see those numbers where they're going to go, wow, I have a big profit center, so I have more dollars. I am getting better coverages. I am getting my tax benefits. And then what that shows a client, a potential client, is by doing the captive, you're going to have less risk, more dollars, as well as tax benefits. So I think it depends on what situation, really, when you're talking down and sitting with a client or a client and an advisor. Do you have a side-by-side that we can show right now to kind of compare? Because this out of all insurance, I think is the sexy insurance because the fact that you're putting in the money that eventually in three to five years, you could, you know, get all of it back, you know, after tax, I think is sure. pretty sexy in itself. Do, do yeah, you have- I mean, we definitely, let me see if I can pull one up here. What about this? You see this now? Yep. There it is. Yep. All right. So... This is the post, you see the post captive one now? Yeah. Okay, so this to me, I think is the most important one right here. And this does the best job. This will discuss this right here because this goes over the captive solution for this business that was grossing $10 million you know, per year. And they were doing pretty well, right? They have a business income of a million bucks. And if they didn't do a captive solution, the business has their certain risks with their commercial insurance policies, the property, general liability, professional liability, and workers' comp. They'll pay around an average of around 420000 between federal and state. Obviously, in California, this will be a lot higher, but this is an average between federal and state across the states. This will leave the total dollars with 580000 Now, if I end up doing the captive solution, as you can tell right here, the business income will drop by 500,000 because this business decided to put 500,000 as their budget premium to cap the solutions. And this helped reduce down their commercial insurance premiums. And it also got them additional coverages. You can tell right here, it says risk insured with captive insurance policies. As I was discussing before, so they have some cyber risks and directors and officers, business interruptions. And these types of policies will have less exclusions okay, in gaps than the commercial policies do, because that's one of the great benefits of a captive is you can tailor the policies a lot better than a commercial type of policy. So what that does is by dropping the business income for 500,000, well, now you're dropping on the taxes down because there's less business income to be taxed on. But the difference here is now this business owner of business owners gets to keep the profit center after expenses with the captive. 
So on 500,000, there's 452,500 left over in this example, which means the total dollars is 742,500 versus the 580,000 if they did not do the captive solution. So mm -hmm. I always tell my clients now is, well, here you go, look at based off of this solution, you now have this profit center where you have more dollars. You have less risk because you have now more risk covered in your captive insurance policies. You're not self-insuring that with dollars that you would use for your, uh, from your business to siphon off the profits or taking money that you've already paid taxes on and put money back into that. It's not really efficient. You have your increased risk awareness, right, which is your education by going through this whole type of scenario. So I think this is usually a really powerful uh, slide that a lot of clients like in a bigger picture because they'd say, you know what, I can see this now. Yeah, here are my five main benefits. Here's my profit center. And now clients can see that they have this less risk, more dollars, as well as the tax benefits. What is the profit center expenses for captive? You could go expand a little more on where that number sure. comes from. Yeah, profit, you know, the, the captive expenses, there's always what's called a seating fee. And all that is, is a, a great, a fancy term for kind of pooling the risk. All right, you can't just insure your own risk or you don't meet risk shifting or misdistribution purposes for the IRS. So generally captives, especially smaller ones will pool their risk in what's called an insurance risk pool, which is a way of gathering unrelated business owners together in order to meet that requirement. So that fees included in that. There's a management fee included, right? You need insurance managers to run the insurance company, right? They need to have actuaries, auditors, underwriters, claim specialists on there. You have, uh, includes audit fees because virtually every domicile uh, that I'm aware of generally wants to have a certified audit done annually, which I think is a very good thing to have uh, for shareholders. And you also uh, have to add in their premium tax, you know, or, app or a type of fee. A domicile will charge a fee per year or some type of premium tax per year because that's how the domiciles make their money. Application fees or premium taxes or actually even both of them potentially. And, and then um, as well as there's claims in there. And a lot of people like uh, insurance pools because it's a rule of large numbers. If you have 100 or 200 or 300 people split, let's say $100,000, it's a lot less than 10 people split. Okay, but that's still not making sense. So you spend $500,000 on the captive and then you got to pay out $200,000 of, of taxes so right there, you got money out the door of going $710,000. Right. So here's, here's what happens. You have the million dollars. You have the 500000 captive solution, this model. The remaining business income, right, is 500000 right. It's from a million now to five hundred. The taxes will drop, right, because there's less business income. The number under here is really two hundred ninety, right? 500 minus 210 is 290. 290 plus the profit center. Right. So that's the money sitting in, the, in your insurance Account, that's exactly, right? okay. that's exactly correct. So that's still your money because you're going to own your own insurance company and right. those reserves are going to be invested. It's just that maybe you, you can't use all of them to go buy a piece of real estate. Maybe you need stocks and bonds and whatnot, or, or whoever is managing those insurance reserve assets at that period of time. And then you add those in. So you're told, that's what we always say, total dollars, right? Because that so that's, profit spent that, that's the money that goes into the captive pre-tax and at the end of three to five years comes out of the captive after tax. 
Correct. You know, and there's different, right. And there's different structures, you know, potentially on that. That's when people talk with their CPAs. But yeah, generally the money comes out of that after tax, usually at long-term capital gains. I wanted to ask about kind of setting up, <clears throat> setting up costs, timeframe to set it up. What is needed? Where, what are some jurisdictions where they're set up out of? Is this on a state basis? Are there certain states where it's better to incorporate a captive? Am I even using the terminology, right? Is it an incorporate? Is it something that's incorporated? I mean, how, how does setup look? What is, and what is the cost and what is the, what is the timeline? Sure. So yeah, you are using, you are using the uh, appropriate uh, terminology, which is good. Nice. Um, so yeah, setting up a captive in the jurisdictions, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it depends on, I would say, what size of captive. So, you know, I always tell people about over 90%, about Fortune 500 companies have a captive, right? So if you have like, let's say like a Coca-Cola, a lot of them will see it set up in like Vermont. Vermont's known for the bigger captives, but not really known for the smaller insurance captives, which are the 831B election type of U.S. captives. A lot of those will get set up in North Carolina, you know, Tennessee, South Carolina, have been more active on the small insurance companies. But I would say it really depends on the captive manager generally has a good relationship with certain domiciles and also where the client's located comes into play as well. So a captive can get formed probably depending on the domicile, <clears throat> anywhere between four to six weeks if everything's in order. A lot of times it can get done quicker depending on the captive manager, the structure they're trying to do, if at the end of the year, a lot of the domiciles want to get their numbers up. So what they'll do is they will try to speed it up saying, you know what, get us all this information and they hire some more people because obviously every domicile wants to get more captives at the end of the year. It's good marketing and it's more money for them for the following year. Okay. I see. So it, it depends on several factors, like you just said, like the business, the, the manager and all everything. Okay. So there's not like a set in stone template as I understand. No, generally managers work with certain domiciles uh, that they deem to have a really good relationship with. Uh, therefore, they know how domicile works, what paperwork to get in. It might even go a little bit faster because the domicile is very familiar with that captive manager because domiciles vet their captive managers, you know, that come in there. You usually have to fill out an application form where they're vetting them because they don't want somebody that they never heard of coming in there going, by the way, I'm sending up a, a bunch of insurance companies. Right. So they usually have to vet them. What about the, the setup costs? Is that going to be dependent on the size and the scope of the captive or is there some, you know, like uh, one-off fees or how, sure, how does that no, Absolutely. Look? Yeah. It depends on definitely the size of the captive. The larger ones will cost more. The large ones I always refer to, as the 831As, which you know are the larger insurance companies, which means that they're gonna write more than $2.3 million per year in premium. They will cost more because there's they're much more at play. You usually have larger corporations, it's a lot more work involved a lot of times, and they are writing more premiums. The so smaller insurance companies generally will not have the same type of expenses associated with it. They're not as um, I would say it's not as much help potentially is needed in order to run those. So they will not cost as much. So you might have a small insurance company, uh, depending on the structure, of course, can go anywhere from 40 to close to $100,000 a year to run with all the expenses I was talking about before, the audits, the premium taxes, the underwriters, the application fees, 
everything really to run it, kind of one of those one-stop shops, including the seating cost. You have to add those in as well. When you get beyond the small cap is going to the large ones, usually it's based off of the gross written premium. So let's say a company's writing five million in gross, the managers might charge anywhere from two and a half to 7% or more of the gross written premium to run it, but then they'll take into account all those expenses, the actuaries, the underwriters. But a lot of those companies that are writing a lot more, they have a lot more policies, right? You might have, you might have anything from travel insurance that might be 100,000 policies where a smaller captive might have 10. <laughs> so you need a different amount of staff in order to handle that. And those obviously have bigger costs. Plus larger insurance companies, a lot of times will have what we call rated paper, which means that you have more filings to do with the state than for instance, a small insurance company that might have different policies might not have the same filings with all the different states. And the form, what is it, form 8103? Is that what you're saying? Uh, which form for what exactly? You were saying the, the larger ones, the larger. Oh, the, the larger insurance companies, if in the U.S., they're 831As. 831As. And that's the form that shows that you probably might get audited by the IRS? No, the IRS form is in 8886. So, okay. the, yeah, so what happens is you have the notice 201666. And in order to comply with that notice, you have to fill out the form. This only, by the way, has to do with U.S. tax captives. So if a captive is not a U.S. tax captive, this notice, obviously, because it's not under the United States, does not apply. But it's a form 8886 is what has to get filled out um, by the owner of the captive, uh, as well as the captive. And so the businesses that the businesses that are insuring through the captive, if the form is applicable, though. So this will work for income generated outside the U.S.? You, you can do the same type of strategy? So, correct. So if you're outside the U.S. and you do not have your captive taxes, U.S. captive, this notice does not apply. But then you bring into account that you might have what's called a controlled foreign corp. And then you therefore might have some uh, taxation if you're a U.S. citizen that you have to file. Um, you know, on returns, I think it's called a... Um, Schedule F, I believe it is. Okay. Subpart F, I believe. There it is, subpart F. See, I've had so many things to talk about that's actually correct. I said schedule, I meant subpart. Even I make uh, mistakes now and then. <laughs> well, there's only one F, I think, so I'd say. There is only one F, right, so. <laughs> yeah. um, and the last thing I want to touch on is, because we didn't really dive into it, you kind of mentioned it, the fact of it's not just your money going into this captive. You are, you're risk averse in the fact that you're spreading out with hundreds of other people in one, one captive so that if somebody follows a claim, it's not really gonna hit everybody's, you know, your account that drastically, correct? That's correct. I mean, that's the, especially in the small insurance companies, you're in, it's mostly what's called an insurance risk pool. So it's based off of a pro rata share. So for instance, Patrick, if, you're, if your premium was 500,000, my premium was a million and Andrew's was 2 million, Andrew would have the most amount of risk because there's more premium in there. So if we all file a claim, we'd have a little bit less because our pro rata share is less than what Andrew put in. Right. But yes, it's, it's a collective where you have to have unrelated uh, you know, business owners come together to meet the risk shifting and risk distribution rules of the IRS because you can't just insure yourself unless you have enough technically brother sister entities to make up a risk shifting risk distribution but that's more common on the larger corporations not generally on the 
profitable small business owners. This is a really interesting conversation. I feel like we could talk about this for, for a while. I could do this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, might, I, might, I might put people to sleep, by the way, but um, well, like I, I said, do this, this know, is the sexy version of insurance. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing sleepy to get about when talking about saving, uh, saving money. No way. Yeah. Well, exactly. When people people's ears perk up, especially in the year, saying, you know, what are these benefits again? What can I get done? And it, it is popular, yes, at the end of the year. But we always like to get people educated about what exactly they're getting into and the benefits and the downside because it's uh, you're taking out a portion of the risk, right? And you're getting those profits. So people have to understand that you're buying into an insurance company. So when you have claims come in, it's an insurance company, it's factoring your premiums, but you are gonna be paying out claims, especially if you're in a good sized risk pool every year. Well, and hearing some of the stories of people filing claims for the COVID, you know, and what they're getting back for, you know, coverage, I just feel that it's, you know, you'd be, insane to not do it you know for the fact that you have kind of control over the coverage of that you're getting and what you're getting back versus a you know a corporate commercial policy is wants to keep the profits so they're going to be very stringent on what they give you absolutely and the wall street journal actually uh this year i believe it was in march came up with a great article about how captives are really helping save uh, i think they're just talking about the u.s but really saving the u.s with business owners because people were filing claims and because they didn't have those exclusions in their policies that they were getting paid and this helped save the business owners. I know from our clients, we had a bunch of claims this year. And again, that's what captives were there to form. They're helping save a lot of business owners. And that's why people were paying those premiums. So win-win. Absolutely. Well, appreciate you taking the time and, and talking about this with us. Absolutely, guys. Happy to help. Hope you guys Thank have you, a great holiday. Yeah, you as you well. You too. Stay safe. Thanks, guys. Thank you. you too. Bye-bye. 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 All right. I think that was a pretty good discussion on uh, insurance. And if you <coughs> want to learn more or want to find out more information on Captive, reach out to us at hello at wallstreetme.at. We'll be more than happy to connect you with Jeremy and give you all the pertinent information that your organization might need. Make sure you tune again in next time and like and subscribe.